right, good morning, everybody. You ready for this? Revelation chapter 11, do you have your Bible with you? If you do, that's where you need to turn, Revelation chapter 11. Last week, we started our look at the interlude that comes between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, like the similar interlude that is found between the sixth and the seventh seals back in chapter 7. This passage gives us a chance to catch our breath, to focus our attention on the people of God. It's a bit of good news in the midst of all this talk about judgment and suffering and death. I'll remind you of something that I shared last week that John MacArthur said about the interludes in Revelation. He says, these interludes encourage God's people in the midst of fury and horror of divine judgment. And they remind them that God is still in sovereign control of all events. During the interludes, God comforts his people with the knowledge that he has not forgotten them and that they will ultimately be victorious. So also, like the interlude back in chapter 7, there seems to be a divergence here from the progress of the trumpets and there in the progress of the seals. In other words, the trumpets have been moving forward toward the great day of the Lord, nearing their climax with the seventh trumpet, in fact. But this interlude that we're looking at today, what we looked at last week, doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily restricted to the space of time between the demon army that we saw a few weeks ago with the sixth trumpet and the sounding of the seventh trumpet that we'll talk about next week. In fact, what I'm going to argue later on today is that this interlude that we're looking at right now covers the entire age of the church from the ascension of Christ back to heaven till the return of Christ uh, to the earth. Like I think that the interlude that we're looking at now covers the entire church age and I'll make that argument a little more clearly in a little while. For application last week, we camped out on the part of the text where John is invited to eat the book. Do you remember that? That that strong angel had a little book in his hand, and John was told to eat the book. I told you that there is an open book for us as well, that we have unprecedented access to God's word. Historically, today, we have unprecedented access to God's word. And globally, even right now, we here in America have unprecedented access to God's word. But I told you, secondly, God's word will do us no good. That little book will do us no good unless we eat it, unless we consume it. We must at least be reading God's word, but merely reading God's word doesn't seem to be enough to really ingest, to really take in all that he has for us. We want to study it. We want to meditate on it. We want to memorize it as well, and we want to obey it. We want to eat the book, and when we do eat the book, it'll be bittersweet. We talked about that last week. And when we encounter the sweetness, we want to delight in it. And when we encounter the bitterness, we want to mourn over it. And I want you to hang on to that concept of bittersweetness because that's really the text today is bittersweet. There are some really sweet things in the text that we're going to look at today. And there are some really hard things to hear in the text that we're going to look at today. And so let's let's savor the sweetness and let's mourn over the bitterness and let's take them both together. And then lastly, uh, we see John commanded to proclaim this book that he eats. He's encouraged, he's commanded to take in the book, to ingest it, to take it into himself, and then to proclaim it to the world around him. And I think we are called to do the same thing. And when we do it, we should expect a varied response to God's word. Some people will love it. They'll say, ooh, that tastes good to me, that smells good to me, and other people will hate it. In fact, they will try to kill you because of your proclamation of God's word. And we're going to see that in the text today as well. But nonetheless, it's worth it. Even if they kill us, it's worth it to share the word of God with the world around us because that's the only hope. That's the only hope that anyone has of salvation. Well, this week in chapter 11, we come to a very difficult passage. 
and I'm honestly a little bit overwhelmed by it. I was pretty overwhelmed just even over the last few weeks and then come to this text and uh, seem to be completely overwhelmed. I'm learning more and more as we move through our study of Revelation why no one does this. No one preaches through Revelation like this. It seems to be impossible a lot of days. It's a challenge for sure. In fact, let me share, you, share with you some highlights from my study this week of chapter 11. Danny Aiken says, Revelation 11 is universally viewed as a challenging and difficult text to interpret in terms of its details. Craig Keener says, This section is perhaps the most difficult passage to interpret in the entire book of Revelation. Grant Osborne says, This is a complicated chapter, one of the most difficult in the book. One of the things that I recognize this week in studying is that the only thing scholars agree upon of all, of all the various things that are going on in chapter 11, the only thing scholars agree upon is that it's really difficult. And I'm telling you that for a couple reasons. One, I, I want to ask for your prayers as I preach it. Uh, I hope that you are constantly praying for us as we uh, prepare to preach God's word to you. We need his help in the preparation and the delivery of God's word. And, and texts like this really reveal just how needy we are in that. And the second reason why I'm telling you this is to alert you that there are a lot of camps on a lot of different issues. There are about five different issues that come up in this text that are highly debated amongst scholars. So we in this room will need to be willing to be patient with one another when we disagree today. And I believe that even if we disagree about some of the details that we're going to look at today, I think we can agree on the applications. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time today. Not necessarily saying, not necessarily arguing for one concept over another, but really camping out in the application. And, and, and what I'm finding is that uh, the application is pretty consistent. Um, so we'll, we'll stay there. I want to... I want to let this note from a scholar named James M. Hamilton Jr. set the tone for what we're going to look at today. He says this. He says, we need to know that God knows us. We need to know that God will empower us. We need to know that God will protect us. We need to know that God has given us a liberating message to proclaim. We need to know that even if we are killed in his service, God is more powerful than even death and he will vindicate us. We need to know that the kingdom will come, that God and Christ will reign, that the righteous will be rewarded, and that the wicked will be judged. And we are going to learn all of those things from Revelation chapter 11. These are things we need to know. And so we want to lean in and be looking for those things today. And I think, I think the Lord will show them to us if we look closely at his word. So let's read together today uh, Revelation chapter 11. I'm going to preach today verses 1 through 14. And then we'll pick up next week in verse 15 um, and, and see the seventh trumpet. So let's read together chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. God's word says, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, 
the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, for where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of, the li- of life from God will come into them. And they stood on their feet. And a great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Verse 14 says, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, remind us on this day that all scripture is inspired by you, breathed out of your very mouth. Remind us that all scripture is profitable to us. Remind us that you are the one who gives understanding and illumination. Remind us that even as we think hard and work hard and sweat and strain and study today, that we are ultimately dependent upon you. So please speak to us. Please help us to hear. Please help us to understand. Please help us to respond properly to your word today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there seem to be two major parts of the text that we're going to look at today. First, We see this business of measuring the temple, the altar, and the worshipers in verses 1 and 2. And then from there forward, we see the two witnesses. We meet the two witnesses and we see their story. And and that second part is much longer, um, but they definitely go together. Like in in trying to decide how to preach this today, that there was was some talk. We had some talk about just preaching verses 1 and 2 today, the measuring of the temple, and then getting the two witnesses next week, and then moving on to the seventh seal um, uh, but we're, we're going to try to handle the measuring and the witnesses today all in one shot. So let's look at the measuring first. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now if you read much about verses 1 and 2, you'll find a variety of opinions about this temple. Some argue that this text is speaking of a literal, physical temple that they expect will be rebuilt in Jerusalem near the end of the age, and that the sacrificial system will be reinstituted before Christ returns. I don't know about that. I don't think you get that from this text in particular, but you have to construct that idea from several different texts. I think it is best to see this text as figurative language, Figurative language that does not represent a literal physical temple in Jerusalem. In fact, I'm a little bit surprised at the number of scholars who argue for, rightly I think, argue for figurative and symbolic reading of many other texts in Revelation. It is, after all, apocalyptic prophecy, and so figurative, symbolic language is to be expected. And many scholars do that up to this point in chapter 11, and then they get to chapter 11 and go all concrete 
like on a number of things, with the temple and with the witnesses and with this number of days, 42 weeks or however many days, they get very concrete and literalistic in their approach. And and I think it's inconsistent with the rest of the approach to Revelation. I think it's best to see what happens here in the measuring off of the temple, the altar, and the worshipers as signifying in a symbolic way God's knowledge of, his ownership of, and his protection of his people in the midst of the world that is opposed to him and opposed to them. Let me say it again. I think it's best to see this measuring off of the temple, the altar, and the worshipers as a symbolic way to signify God's knowledge of, his ownership of, and his protection of his people in the midst of a world that is opposed to him. Now, this idea of measuring something for the sake of ownership and protection is consistent with several Old Testament passages. You can look at Zechariah chapter 2 or Ezekiel 42 for a very similar thing, like measure this off because this is mine. Measure this off because this will be protected and this will be destroyed. And so it seems to be consistent with Old Testament paint. It also parallels the sealing and the numbering of the people of God in the last interlude. You may remember back in chapter 7, there was this numbering of the people of God and the seal was put on their forehead, right? Do you remember that? 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, 144,000 altogether, numbered and sealed by God, marked off, measured off, named and numbered by him as his people, sealed as ownership and protection. It's very similar. What we're seeing here in the measuring of the temple, very similar to that. This idea also fits with the New Testament understanding that the people of God are the temple of God. That that we are not longing for a physical, literal temple in Jerusalem. We are the temple. We are the temple. God dwells within us. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 for this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This idea of no longer a brick-and-mortar building where God dwells, but a people in whom he dwells, a gathered people in whom he dwells. You see a very similar concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 2. What I'm saying is this concept of, of... Uh, The temple being symbolic of the people of God fits with the New Testament understanding that we are the temple. And this idea that I'm sharing with you also fits with the idea of not measuring the outside. He he is told specifically, measure the temple, measure the altar, measure the worshipers, but don't measure the outer court. Don't measure the outside. In other words, that is not under ownership. That is not under protection. That is not separated off and sealed and owned in the same way as everything else does. It is left to the nations and the treading underfoot of the holy city. So I think this is yet another way of God showing John that he knows his people and he owns his people that he has marked them off and measured them out, that he owns them and will protect them in the midst of all kinds of trouble. The expository commentary goes down this road when it says, to say that the temple, the altar, and the worshipers are measured is to say that God protects and watches over his people, that they are under his care, under his lordship, and under his sovereign oversight. And friends, that is really good news for us. Friends, we can take courage Because he knows us, he loves us, and he is 
for us. In fact, Jim Hamilton Jr. that I mentioned earlier says this, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Ask the Lord right now to assure you that he knows you by name, that he will protect you, that he has stretched out the measuring line over you, that you belong to him. I really think we need this. This is part of the sweetness of the text today. We, we need this. In our study of Revelation, even, we need this. We need this reminder that we are his people, and he has stretched the measuring line over us. He owns us, and he will protect us. We need to be reminded of that in the midst of all of this talk about judgment and wrath that is coming. We need to recognize that he has measured us out. We also need that in our lives right now as we live. This is a really hard time. This is a really difficult season that we find ourselves in. There is opposition and trouble, suffering everywhere we turn. And it is good for this text to remind us that God knows us. He owns us. He cares about us. And he will protect us ultimately. This is sweet. And I hope that you will receive it as sweetness. Now before you move on to the next section, let's talk about 42 months. You will see it in the next section as well. Only there it will be mentioned as 1260 days. You will see this period of time also mentioned as 3.5 years. One other place in scripture refers to it as time, times, and half a time. Uh, creative ways, multiple different ways to talk about three and a half years. Now, like with the temple that I mentioned a minute ago, some see a concrete measurement of time here. Often they see it as the last half of a literal seven years of great tribulation just before the return of Christ. And they make an interesting argument for this, but yet again, I think it's best to see this as a symbolic number, a symbolic number that actually represents the entire church age, from the time of Christ's ascension to the time of his return. Because it is during this time that the church will be proclaiming the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it is during this time that the enemy will be persecuting the church for proclaiming that message. And yet, it is during this time that God will sustain his church, even through great suffering. That has been happening for 2,000 years and will continue until the end. E even if there is some escalation in all of that toward the end, it is still happening even now. And so I don't think we need to take this text and apply it to some time to come, some time that we're waiting for. I think we need to take this text and apply it to our lives even today. Even if we anticipate some kind of escalation in the future, these principles apply to us today. I think it's best to see this mention of 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years as a symbolic number that represents the entire church age, the time from Christ's ascension until his return, where God's people are marked out. God's people are known by him and protected, even though they experience intense hardship. That comes with the bitterness. Even though we are numbered, even though we are measured, even though we are named and sealed by him, even though we're protected by him, there will be intense hardship that we experience. And we're going to look at some of that hardship when we talk about the two witnesses in the next section. So that's the business of, of measuring the temple. Now, let's meet the two witnesses. I'm going to read a bunch of this to you, and then we'll walk through it a little bit more slowly. Look at verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. 
These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. They will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, I will admit right off the bat, there's a ton going on here. And we're not going to get to all of it. Like I already had a conversation with Dylan uh, this morning and he was like, he, he was drawing out one particular part of it. And I said, ah, I'm not going to say a whole lot about that today. Sorry. And so there may be something that you're just dying to know about today that I'm not going to talk about at all. There's just too much. Um, but I hope we will get a general application of what's going on here. There's a lot going on here. And there are many people who think that this is a reference to two literal, physical preachers of the gospel who will appear near the end of time, close to the return of Christ, and the things that are spoken of here about what they do and what happens to them are actually like a narrative account that will unfold before our eyes, one scholar says, on television. One scholar even goes so far as to say the the advent of satellite television makes all of this possible. Like gets that specific about it, that we're going to watch this on satellite television in Jerusalem when these guys lay on the, on the street for three and a half days and then are raised back up. Like it's super specific like that. Some even go so far as to speculate exactly who these two men are. Some scholars argue for Elijah and Enoch, basically because they're the two characters from the Old Testament that didn't die. Like they just, they just went up, right? They just were not. Anymore, And they believe that because of that, these are the two guys that are going to come back and be the preachers of the gospel that will bring about uh, the return of Christ. There are others who argue that it's actually Joshua and Zerubbabel. And they take that from this mention of the lampstands and the oil. Like that is a a really clear picture in the Old Testament of of Joshua and Zerubbabel. And so they say, it's got to be those two guys. Like, come back. These two guys come back. Other people say it's Elijah and Moses. This is probably the most common view of who these guys are if they are literal physical men. That they are Elijah and Moses who represent the law and the prophets who were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They believe, uh, Jewish people believe these two guys were coming back. Jesus says John the Baptist was Elijah come back. um, But yet there are many people who say this is... This is going to happen, literally and physically. Elijah's going to show up on the scene someday, and Moses along with him, and people are going to listen to them uh, as, they, as they preach the gospel. Maybe, all right? I'll, I'll give you that. Maybe this is a reference to two literal, physical men who will come on the scene near the end and preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think it's more likely that these guys represent the church. That these guys represent the church in its role of proclaiming the gospel until the return of Christ 
and the way that that will play out over time. I would argue that even if this text is a reference to two literal physical men, those two guys serve as a pattern and an example for all of us. I think if we put all of our eggs in the two literal physical men basket, that these are two literal guys to come, that that would cause us to be very lazy in our role as witnesses. If there are two literal guys coming, you might be tempted just to wait for them to come on the scene. And that would be a huge mistake. That would be a huge mistake because God has clearly called us. He has clearly called you, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be witnesses. Here, now, we are the witnesses. And we want to be the witnesses. And so what I want us to do is, even if you say, oh, Chris, I think you're wrong. This is not a reference to the church. These are two guys to come, and I think I know exactly who they are. Okay, even if you think that, we're not going to sit back and wait for them to come and preach the gospel. We have clearly been called to preach the gospel here and now. And so I think even if if you're going to say it's those guys, there are some principles that we can draw about their story that will impact our lives. I want us to notice 12 things. I had 13 originally, but I changed it. I combined two. 12 things that I want us to notice about these guys. First thing is this. From the text, they are given authority. They are given authority. They don't have authority in and of themselves. They they don't come on the scene on their own authority, nor do they go hijack someone else's authority. They, They don't go and take authority. They are given authority. It is given to them. And that sounds a lot like the role of the church, right? We we are given authority. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 28. The the commission that we are given to go be witnesses, right? Says this, Jesus came up and spoke with him saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This authority is Jesus, and he is Jesus is, and he shares it with his disciples to go and make disciples, to go and be his witnesses all throughout the earth, right? These witnesses are sent out. They are equipped by the one who has all the authority, and friends, it's the same with us. It's the same with us. That, that, that same principle applies to us. We've been sent out with Jesus' authority to be his witnesses on the earth. Second thing, notice, they are his witnesses. They are his witnesses. The voice that is speaking is the Lord himself. They are witnesses unto him. They speak of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We see this same thing in 1 John chapter 1. This is John talking about his experience with Jesus and as a witness to Jesus. He says, what was from the beginning What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with God, with the Father, and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So so these two witnesses are his witnesses. They are testifying what, to what they have seen and heard of him. And friends, it's the same with us. That's what we've been called to. We've been called to witness to the world about what we have seen and heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, they are plural. 
there are witnesses, two of them in particular. And this rings a bell to us because this is how Jesus sent his disciples out to be his witnesses, right? He didn't say, go on your own, be total lone rangers. He sent them out in pairs, in pairs, because there is strength in those kind of numbers. It's practically helpful in a whole lot of ways so that you don't get yourself in some kind of moral trouble, so that you don't get yourself in some kind of doctrinal trouble, so that the people to whom you are witnessing hear the same thing from multiple mouths. It's a good thing to have multiple witnesses. And there's authority. Old Testament-wise, there's authority in multiple witnesses. In fact, look at Deuteronomy chapter 19. It says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. That's a principle from the Old Testament, a legal principle from the Old Testament that is then brought into the New Testament and used to show why why we proclaim the message of the gospel in pairs. Not Lone Ranger, we go out together and we are witnesses together because the truth is affirmed by multiple witnesses. Friends, it's the same with us. We're not isolated individuals being witnesses. We're a group of witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth thing you'll notice is that they prophesy. They prophesy. In other words, they speak forth the word of God. When we hear that someone is prophesying, we tend to think that we're talking about future events, the foretelling of future events. But when you read the Old Testament, the prophets spend most of their time simply telling what the Lord has said. The mark of the prophet's speech is, thus saith the Lord. And so these prophets, when they go out, the two witnesses, when they go out, they don't say, hey, I've got an idea to share with you. I've got a concept. They say, this is what the Lord has said. Let me declare the word of God to you. Friends, it's the same with us. It's what we've been called to. We've been called to declare the word of God to the world, to say, thus saith the Lord. Fifth, they have a posture of repentance and mourning. If you notice, as they go about prophesying, they wear sackcloth. That's a a little detail that we're totally unfamiliar with. But if you read the Bible, you will see that sackcloth is put on on two occasions. One, in mourning, uh, in grief, over sadness or loss, or just kind of emotional turmoil and upset, you put on sackcloth. Or, in repentance, in repentance over sin, you put on sackcloth. So the posture of these witnesses as they go out is one of repentance and mourning. You wear sackcloth when you are mourning and when you are repenting of sin. And these guys are mourning over the lostness and sinfulness of the world, and they are living in repentance of their own sins. And friends, it's the same with us, is it not? Do we not grieve over the lostness of the world? Do we not have sorrow over the sinfulness of the world around us? And are we not called to daily be repenting of our own sins? As we go out as his witnesses, we need to put on the garment of sackcloth, of mourning and repentance. It's the same with us. Sixth, these witnesses are persecuted. You will notice that people want to harm them. You will notice that people try to harm them. Friends, we know that the darkness hates the light and will try everything it can to stop the light from shining. We need to acknowledge in this room today that persecution is the norm. Persecution is the norm for those who boldly proclaim Jesus as the only way for salvation. Our lack of persecution around here is abnormal. 
It is abnormal. The fact that we are not persecuted here is abnormal. Maybe we're not persecuted because we live in this strange land where the gospel is, is out there. There is gospel saturation and there is gospel tolerance around us. Or maybe we are not persecuted because we are not bold witnesses. Nick Ripkin says the easiest way to avoid persecution is just to be quiet about the gospel. In America, the easiest way to avoid persecution is to be silent about the gospel. In Central Asia, the easiest way to avoid persecution is just to be quiet about Jesus. In North Africa, the easiest way to avoid persecution is just to be quiet about Jesus. Maybe we are too quiet about Jesus. They're persecuted. But, notice seventh, they are protected. It seems like they can't be killed, at least at this point in the text. Like there are people coming after them, they want to do them harm, but they are protected by God. And this is something we read about from missionaries all throughout history. In fact, there's one line, <clears throat> there's one line that shows up in almost every missionary biography. Lottie Moon said it like this. She said, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal till my work is done. Uh, that'll get you. If that doesn't stir you up, <clears throat> then there may be something dead inside of you. Little bitty Lottie said, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal until my work is done. Jim Elliott used that same phrase. This is also attributed to David Livingston and George Whitfield and countless other missionaries. But Elliott said, remember, you are immortal until your work is done. But don't let the sands of time get into your eyes of your vision to reach those who still sit in darkness. They simply must hear. And our, our workers that are out there on the field live this way. I am bulletproof until my work is done. It gives them courage and confidence. And we see it in these witnesses. They are protected. Eighth thing we see is that they are powerful. They are powerful. As people try to do them harm, they speak and fire comes out of their mouth and destroys their enemies. They speak and the rain stops coming down. They speak and the waters turn to blood. When they speak, there is power. It's not just about a message. There is a power that comes along with it. And we read, we read of this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. I, li I like the, the coincidence of power and witness in that text. And we see it in the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. They are protected, they are powerful, and the ninth thing I want you to see is they are killed. They are killed. When their mission is accomplished, it is given that the beast would overcome them. The, the beast can't overcome them until it's given that he would do that. I want you to know, you might not know this, but the same Greek word behind our word witness is the same Greek word behind our word martyr. In other words, witness and martyr are the same word in Greek. We use context to determine which we should translate, but they are the exact same word. 
Now what we see here in the death of the witnesses may feel like a contradiction of the seventh truth I shared with you, that they can't be killed. But we know that this is the way it ends for many faithful proclaimers. They are immortal till their work is accomplished. And then many of them will die at the hands of their persecutors. That's the way it goes. That's the way the church has spread throughout generations. It's a truth that we need to embrace. I read one scholar that said, if we believe our Lord's teaching, we must work to get the church ready for suffering, ready even for martyrdom, if that becomes the necessary price of our witness to those who do not wish to hear. We must get the church ready for martyrdom, this guy says. And so I talked to your other pastors about this, and, and, and we're wrestling with the question, of how do we do that? How do we get you ready for martyrdom if that's the price that must be paid? We're not, we're not there yet. Like wholesale, we're, we're not there yet. And we want to keep wrestling with that question. I, I think I know some ways we don't make you ready to be martyrs. We will not make you ready by catering to every preference you have. We cannot expect a group of people to be willing to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel if they won't listen to a kind of music they don't prefer or sit in a temperature that isn't their desired uh, ambient temperature or some other thing like that. Like if we are constantly just catering to your preferences, we are not preparing you to be martyrs. If we make everything super convenient for you, just put everything just on a, on a platter for you, we're not preparing you to be martyrs, perhaps. If we treat everything with kid gloves, we're not preparing you to be martyrs. But if, <clears throat> if we preach a radical God-centeredness in all things, if we become familiar with suffering, if we become familiar with the suffering of witnesses historically and even globally right now, if we make a habit of doing hard things, I, I think that'll help us be prepared to lay down our lives eventually. We want to wrestle with this. I, I invite you to wrestle with this with us. How can we prepare the church for suffering, even martyrdom, if that becomes the price that is necessary for our witness? Friends, if we are bold witnesses, they will kill some of us. That's, that's not real likely around here right now, but it is super likely around the planet right now. And it may become more and more likely around here in the future. And yet we must proclaim Look at the tent thing. After they are killed, they are mocked. This is a crazy deal. Like, if you notice in the text, like as these two witnesses are laying dead on the street, the world is having a party over it. They declare a holiday. One scholar referred to it as Dead Witnesses Day. Notice they exchange presents. Those who dwell on the earth give each other gifts in their celebration over the death of these two witnesses. They throw a party mocking them. And their death, celebrating their death. One scholar said, this is the only time the word rejoicing is used in Revelation. That blew my mind. I'm not sure it's actually true, but it blew my mind that he would even say it. This is the only time the word rejoice is used in Revelation. Who's rejoicing? Those who dwell on the earth. What are they rejoicing over? The death of the witnesses. We will not always be honored in our death. We will not always be honored by the world in our martyrdom. They may drag our dead bodies through the streets. But the 11th thing that we want to see is that they are eventually vindicated and exalted. 
as the world throws their party and gives their gifts and exchanges greetings and rejoicing over the death of these martyrs, what does God do? After three and a half days of being on the street, stinking and rotting, what does God do? He breathes life into them again. And in the sight of all of these people who are watching and rejoicing over their demise, he raises them to life. And he doesn't just raise them to life, he takes them up to heaven to be with them. He both, he both vindicates them and exalts them in this great resurrection. And the same will be true for us, friends. The world may rejoice and gloat over our demise in the present time, but there will be vindication and there will be exaltation. And the 12th thing I want you to notice is that they are effective. These witnesses are effective. Their suffering and death was not in vain. After this earthquake happens and a bunch of people die, a bunch of people get saved. That language of they glorified God in Revelation seems like conversion. Seems to fit with genuine worship. Their suffering and death was not in vain. Many in the city who were once celebrating their demise came to glorify God. Brothers and sisters, this is how we overcome. This is how we conquer, by laying down our lives. Not by fighting for our rights, not by conquering through force or might, not by the tactics of this world, but by the tactics of the Lamb. How did the Lamb overcome so as to be worthy to take the book and break its seals? He died and rose again. How will we overcome? We will lay down our lives gladly. Not take up our weapons and fight, but give our lives for the sake of the kingdom. We follow Jesus and we are effective. Now, there's another thing going on here at the very end of the text that is pretty tricky, I'll be honest with you. But there's probably a reference here to the conversion of many Jewish people near the very end. Fleshing out of what Paul talks about in Romans 8 through 10, there's like a pretty specific mention of Jerusalem in the midst of all this, where, where your Savior died, like that kind of stuff. There seems to be some kind of connection between a, a, a massive awakening and conversion of Jewish people to faith in Jesus, probably fleshed out here. I don't want to get into that a ton today. Um, but if you want to talk about that on, on some other time, I'd be glad to do that. Look at verse 14. <clears throat> verse 14 says, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is quickly coming. This is like a literary signal that we're finished with the interlude and we're going to get back to the action of the trumpets. And we're going to see that action next weekend. Next weekend, we're going to see the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Now, you may remember that last week, when John was told to eat the book, there was a sense of bittersweetness to it. And I think that theme carries on here. Even as we talk about how do we apply this text today, there's a bittersweetness to it all. First application is this. God knows and protects his people. It's what we saw at the beginning. He's measuring them out. It's what we see even, even at the end that he raises them up and takes them with him to heaven. Like there's this, he knows his people and he protects them. The question is, are you one of his people? Are you one of those that's been measured out? Are you one of those that is named and numbered? Well, how do you become one of those people? Well, it's not by birth. It has nothing to do with your parents. It's not by attending church, like you haven't scored points by being here today. 
that would make you one of his people. It's not by doing good things that we become one of his people. No, we know that we become his people by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is a gift that we receive by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that God is holy. We see his holiness on display throughout the Bible. We see his holiness on display even in our own lives. We know that we are sinful. We see that on display every day. And because of God's holiness and our sinfulness, there's a, there's a break. It's a massive problem. How, how can sinful man have a relationship with holy God? Maybe the better question is, how could holy God have a relationship with sinful man? And we know that the answer is through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God became man, dwelt among us, took our sin as if it was his own, and suffered the death that we deserve. The wrath of God was satisfied in the death of Jesus for his people. We are called to repent of our sins and trust in Christ for salvation. That's how we become one of his people. So I'm, I'm inviting you today to repent and believe. If you are one of his people, you are known by him and protected by him. And that is sweet. And I want us to savor that sweetness, to remember that he has saved us, that he knows us, and that he will keep us no matter what. And if you're not one of his people, I invite you to repent and believe today. I would say, as the Old Testament says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste of the sweetness of his mercy and grace in Christ today. God protects his people. He knows his people. That's number one. But that protection and that knowledge is for a purpose. It is not just so that you can savor the sweetness. He knows and protects us so that we can proclaim, so that we can be his witnesses. So I'm inviting you, I want to say to us, let's be the witnesses. Let's not wait for these two dudes to show up and do it. Let's be the witnesses here, now, today. Let's be the witnesses. That's going to take individual commitment and action. We will not be the witnesses unless you are the witness, unless I am the witness. It's going to take individual commitment, and it's going to take partnership and solidarity within this body. We, we don't just go out on our own. We are together as the witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be the witnesses here and now. Let's be witnesses in the sense of proclaiming the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done. That's what witnesses do, right? They speak of what they have seen and heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's do that. What do you know about him? Have you read stuff about him? Have you experienced his work in your own life? Be a witness. Tell the world what you have seen and heard. If you have one conversation with Pastor Dylan, you are going to hear him say, let's be a bold witness. If you hear him pray one time, you will hear him pray that the Lord would make us bold witnesses. Let's do that. And if that means that we become witnesses in the other sense, so be it. Martyrs, witnesses who testify of the, of the truth about who Jesus is, become martyrs who die because people hate the truth of who Jesus is. And we must be willing to embrace both of those. We must be willing to lay down our lives for this. We must be willing to face bitterness and opposition and persecution and even martyrdom. Because this is what we know. If we learned anything from today, this is what we know. We are bulletproof until our work is done. That, that'll change the way you approach it. 
Like, what's the worst they can do to you? They could kill you, but they can't until your work is done. You're bulletproof until your work is done. And secondly, when your work is done, he takes you home. Like, even, even if they kill you, what can they do? Paul talks about that, right? Paul talks about this kind of confidence. Like, if I live, it's good. If I die, it's good. I can't lose. You can't make me lose. When our work is done, he will take us home. And the third thing we learned is this work is never vain. Friends, if we look at church history, we will learn that God oftentimes uses a person's death to bring more people to his kingdom than their life. He just does. Jim Elliott didn't get to spend a lot of time on the mission field. And yet God used his death to bring a bunch of folks into the kingdom. Used his death to send a bunch of folks out into the work. God is faithful. And your service, your sacrifice for his kingdom will never be empty. It will never be in vain. The only thing empty, the only thing vain is being silent. The empty life is a quiet life. It may be simple. It may be easy. It may be comfortable. But it will be empty. So be a bold witness. Be a bold witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for the sweetness of this text, the reminder that you know us and protect us as your people. Help us to embrace the bitter parts of this text that speak of inevitable persecution, potential martyrdom. God, I pray that you will sink these truths down deep in us, that we will know that we are bulletproof until our work is done, that we will know that when the work is done, you will take us home, and that we will know that when our work is done, it is never in vain, that you may use even our death to bring people to your kingdom. Father, help us to be the witnesses together, here and now. Pray for men and women and boys and girls who who don't know you, they don't know the sweetness of the gospel, I pray that you will make it known to them today, that they will taste and see that you are good and that they will be changed forevermore by your grace. In Christ's name we pray.